My dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tooks and Brandybugs, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, nigh 20 years hence. Sam, we're still in the Shire. What could possibly happen? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Shortcut to Mushrooms, episode 5 on The Fellowship of the Ring. Today, the Hobbit Quartet rounds out as they haul ass away from the Nazgul. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And I wanted to announce a stretch goal that you may have seen on my Patreon or floating around on our uh, Twitter page. Uh, I would like to uh, propose that if I can get up to 75 patrons on patreon.com slash nuclear bomb. We will do bonus episodes that w- one each on the extended edition scenes and then one on the scenes that are in the book, but were not really attempted to be adapted in any meaningful way for um, the fellowship of the ring. And if we can make that around 100 patrons, we will unlock episodes uh, like that for both uh, the two towers and uh, the return of the King. So if you're listening and you want us to delve even greedilier or <laughs> deeper uh, into the Tolkien and Lord of the Rings world, uh, please check out patreon.com slash nuclear bomb. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to cover those episodes and provide them to you. Tom Bombadil, we are coming for you. We pick up with Sam stumbling through a field of crops, having lost track of Frodo for a second. When Frodo finally calls back, Sam reveals he made a promise to Gandalf that he wouldn't leave Frodo's side, and he means to stick to it. Aww turns into ow, as Merry and Pippin come slamming into Frodo and Sam out of nowhere. They'd been helping themselves to Farmer Maggot's crop, and he's ever so pissed. Looney Tunes ensues. Pippin lists off all the crops they stole as the four hobbits scramble away from a giant scythe, a symbol of death. The field of crops gives way to a precipitous drop that three hobbits pull up for, but the fourth barrels through and sends them all tumbling down the hill. Mary thinks he's broken something, a giant carrot, turns out, and Pippin plays it off as a shortcut to mushrooms, which Tolkien's text tells us is a hobbit favorite. This burst of comic relief gives way, though, as Frodo senses something coming down the road. A wind and a whisper forces the hobbits into hiding under a big willow as a black rider pulls up on his black steed. The Nazgul dismounts. We, the audience, get to see the wraith in all its terror. The hobbits only see a glimpse. A boot here, a gauntlet there. It sniffs around for its quarry as Frodo feels the intense desire to put on the ring. Sam stops him just short, and Mary tosses some shit to pull the Nazgul's attention away. What was that? wonders the hobbits, as Frodo for the first time begins to understand what it is that hunts him. 
Twilight arrives as the four companions duck and weave through the forest as the riders give pursuit. Confirmed plural at Buckleberry Ferry, which Frodo just barely catches. The warmth of the Shire is gone now, as a rainstorm heralds the Hobbit's arrival to Bree. An old watchman questions them at the gate, saying there's been strange folk abroad. He eventually relents and lets them pass, and they head for the inn of the Prancing Pony. Say hi to Peter Jackson on the way, who can be seen amongst the Bree folk. We'll stop there, as a lot is about to go down at the end. So one of the really brilliant bits about this scene, and it, it actually sticks out more to me than uh, the Nazgul uh, showing up and being spooky for the first time, is how brilliant and happy and joyful Merry and Pippin are, um, and what a breath of fresh air they are. Um, and knowing that they are fun and lighthearted, brilliant um, comedic relief, I am now going to totally weigh that down with like boring lore shit, but it feels really necessary to me um, because I do... For all that I like to dunk on the hobbits, I do really like the hobbits and find them very interesting. Um, but um, in in the books, um, the hobbits are said to not come of age until they're in their thirties, um, and uh, like I, there there is sort of an ongoing fan in fan in that is like canon with an F there um, interpretation that says that like you know the hobbits um, age much slower, they live much longer. Um, there's actually nothing um, in the books to say that this is true, and Tolkien goes out of his way in a lot of the auxiliary notes that were later published by his son Christopher Tolkien to emphasize that the hobbits don't live longer than men. Um, they just don't come of age until they're 33. Um, there's really nothing um, that that differs in their lifespans. They just have a much longer childhood and youth. Um, and that is just how their culture functions and just how their culture works. Um, and I always think that that's really brilliant because it's such like a lovely um, way for Tolkien to show like how people get to live and the sort of like ongoing joy they get to have for much longer when they're not, you know, touched and tainted by war. Anyways, um, all that said, um, Pippin is the youngest of all of the hobbits um, in both the book. Actually, you know what? He's not the oldest in the movie because Billy Boyd is way older than he looks. Um, I found that out recently. Mm -hmm. He's like 10 years older than Don Monaghan or something like that is wild. Anyways, I digress. Um, Pippin is the youngest um, and his kind of function um, in the story is really to kind of be the bringer of joy. Um like I, I know on this pod especially we talk a lot about like you know tricksters um, and Pippin is definitely that but he's also kind of this like symbol of like perpetual childhood and like the like vibrancy and strength and vitality of feeling young and jovial and free um, and this obviously the scene obviously beautifully sets him up as that um, and I think you know as we get further and further into the story and especially in Return of the King um, and his fun little scenes there we'll, we'll be able to kind of return and talk about um, um, youthfulness and like the fading of youth or the lack of fading of youth um, and like people's agency in that. But here, um, Pippin is just baller um, and Mary is his enabler. Um, and it is uh, I really just, I think, one of the nicest little ways to begin to leave the Shire um, with this promise of like ongoing 
joy and uh, comedy. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I just kind of put together in my mind as you talk about him being kind of a jokester is the fact that he's often referred to as a fool, which, you know, we commonly think of as referring to, like, you know, someone who's kind of stupid or slow or something like that. Um, but, you know, in classic medieval literature, fiction, nonfiction, the fool is also just another word for, like, the court jester, um, who is often, you know, clownish in his own ways, but he brings that kind of joy and mirth and frivolity to, you know, a king's court or what what have you. And in a way, every time that uh, Pippin is referred to as a fool, um, it kind of works both ways and not that just he's being called an idiot by Gandalf, which boo Gandalf, we all love Pippin. Um, but also just that like he is that member, if this is a court, so to speak, like this fellowship, he is the jester, he is um, the fool, but you know, lovingly, not in a derogatory way. Yeah, and I think this is um, uh, this is something I was actually going to get into uh, like a little later, but I'm going to like move it forward because I think this like segues into it quite quite nicely. Um, but I think there is something to be said for the fact that um, of all of the hobbits, um, Pippin is the only one that has a slightly divergent accent, and and I, and I know um, English people will rightly get mad at me for this, but like really fundamentally, there's not a huge amount of difference between like Elijah Wood as Frodo's kind of strange pseudo received pronunciation whatever the hell don monahan's doing um and sam's sean Aston is sam's like slightly west country accent but they're all english and they all scan as english to everybody and no one's really like thinking about those regional variations and um, pippin is definitely scottish um and there is really no like hiding or like mollifying of that accent and it really comes through um and for me i find that um an interesting creative choice especially given that we know that pretty much everybody else in the cast is being asked to do different accents um, that Billy Boyd as Pippin gets to keep his. Cause I think it kind of says something about like um, the, the sort of like, like national stereotypes and like caricatures that, that um, really sort of help to fill out how we think about this fantasy universe. Like you hear a Scottish accent and you, you're kind of like prepped and primed and ready for like humor um, or um if it's not someone who's like as sweet looking as um, Billy Boyd, um, it's going to be someone who's going to like rough you up um, in the sort of like Peter Mullen style of actor. But, you know, we don't have that here. We have we have Billy Boyd being like lovely and gleeful. Um, and I, I, and I, I don't really know if I have like a take on that, like a like a wider, like hardline political take. It's just something that I've been like noticing and thinking about as I've been going through these movies is like, isn't that interesting that of all of the like regional accents that got squelched? Billy Boyd's is the one that survives. Um, and and I think, like, you know, it, it is because there is kind of this sense of, like, Scotland as, you know, huh, comedy nation. <laughs> um, I don't know what excites me more when you preface things with this is going to make Silmarillion fans mad or this will make English people mad. I, th I think I, I more endorse making the English mad for various <laughs> colonial reasons tied to my motherland. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's yeah, please make as many people mad as possible. <laughs> uh, and we'll we'll uh, come back to Pippin here in a second. But uh, one thing I wanted to highlight in this section was that the scenes we just recapped today were among the first shot in the entire film's production. The goal was to actually have the four actors playing the hobbits on set early so they could develop these bonds of fellowship, you know, for titular reasons. 
Um, the sequence opens up with Sam's first vocal commitment to Frodo, binding him both to his master, but also to Gandalf as an oath of fealty and friendship and love. And then we have, you know, uh, Merry and Pippin kind of just slamming into them and like rounding out our foursome. And really these four will be kind of, you know, I don't even think kind of is where they are the heart of these films. Um, you know, all sorts of characters play all sorts of roles, but, um, they all kind of represent the emotional core, tying back to what we said about Sam and Frodo and the Shire in previous episodes. And even when they splinter and go off on their own separate storylines, they still pretty much play the emotional beats within the storylines they find themselves on. I'm thinking more so in Return of the King, where Merry and Pippin finally get separated for a time. And then obviously Sam and Frodo, you know, that that's a whole thing that I'm sure we'll talk about um, in detail as we go. But um, I really like that they kind of, made the film production in a way to echo kind of what they wanted to draw out in the story by having these, you know, four actors uh, kind of together and kind of form, you know, again, I hate to keep saying the bonds of fellowship, but that's really what they were trying to aim for. And I think it really does come across, um, especially in later scenes that we'll see them all shooting together. Yeah. And I think it's like one of these like kind of pervasive um, themes from from the behind the scenes of this movie or these movies rather is the like the the way that the production was set up was really to kind of get the like core actors in any given scene into um, the mindset, whether they wanted it or not, that they were like trapped with these people not like in a negative way not like in a stanley cooper kind of trapped but like um you know when they are filming fellowship these poor guys are actually walking up a mountain together um and you know when they're filming the scenes in rohan like all of the kind of court of adoras are all having to spend all of their time together in a more intensive way than your average film set not just because of the location, but also because it was this like conscientious choice on behalf of the like creative team to be like, we're really going to throw these people together and make them feel like this is like the world. And it really comes across and um, very like effectively in how the film plays out. And, and like with this in particular, I think getting that like kind of innate chemistry that like Don Monaghan and, and Billy Boyd have um, and putting it alongside kind of like Sean Astin's like, like kind of like integral and like fundamental wariness um, and Elijah Wood's like bright eyed, bushy tailed, whatever he's got going on is just like, it works so beautifully right from the off. Yeah. And, you know, this is all building to the conclusion of Return of the King. Um, you know, not even the we bow to no one moment, but those uh, last moments at the Grey Havens, which is about, you know, the four hobbits finally kind of going their own ways, or at least, you know, Frodo permanently disentangling himself from them. Um, and a lot of that emotion works because of how well these characters and actors are. Um, just the actors, not the characters, but like came together on set and were able to convey, um, you know, the sense of love and friendship and loyalty to each other. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, it has this feeling for me um, of, of like, like childhood nostalgia. Like, I, I mean, I grew up, I'm a city kid. Um, if that's not immediately obvious by like everything about me, but like, there is a feeling that like, as I'm watching these scenes, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm thinking back to like when I was running through like cornfields with my friends when I was like 10 years old or whatever, I, which is just not a thing that I've ever done. But this, like the, this scene and, and getting these four together causing mayhem and um, when they really could have easily cut this out and, and not had it, I think really, get you this sense of like they are at the like 
you know, to use uh, one of Tolkien's favorite phrases, they're like a people in, in the kind of like springtime of their lives. Um, mm-hmm. And and there is this kind of like wholesomeness and like um, youthful innocence to it um, that then gets immediately destroyed. But because they've got it and because they've done it in such a nostalgic way, it really helps to like anchor um, all of the like incoming trauma <laughs> and make it feel that much worse when it happens. Yeah, I uh, specifically use the phrase Looney Tunes because the whole bit of them like kind of tumbling down uh, the hillside, you know, with all four of them kind of rolling down just reminded me of that. Um, It actually more specifically reminds me of Millhouse in (laughs) Lemon of Troy from The Simpsons where they're going to the lemon tree and there's just a shot of him stumbling down the hill. Um, And it's also just very kind of little rascals-y. I've never actually really seen (laughs) the little rascals, but it just kind of has that kind of feel or vibe or maybe even Three Stooges. Um, which, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think these are like intentional call outs, shout outs or homages or anything, but it is very much establishing that kind of vibe between them. And I think that goes very much along with what you were talking about earlier about kind of aligning the ages of these characters and putting an emphasis on the youthfulness and the kind of the frivolity that comes with it. Yeah. And I, and I think like one of the the things that I quite like about, um, the setting for it. Um, and I think maybe this is like, a I don't know if this is like an American, like an aggressively American way of thinking about this, but when I see like cornfields and farmlands and kids running through them, um, or not kids, but people who like scan as kids, um, it, it doesn't necessarily have like the same kind of children of the corn, um, like, um, relationship in my mind that that I think some of the later cornfield scenes have um or not cornfield but like the later nature scenes where like you see farmlands and it's a bit like mm, this is like M. Night Shyamalan's The Village or whatever and um, this one kind of has a bit more of the like um this this is a simple life this is like an easy life and like the dangers here um are are really quite minimal um it's almost like the 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 kind of start of the goonies before everything goes real bad (laughs) no that's i think that's actually very exactly uh the kind of thing here um we almost have like i mentioned uh the farmer maggot scythe is like a symbol for death and it kind of pushes them off this cliff where they roll off the farm fields and then are immediately pushed into danger and despair. Um, and we'll get there in a second, but uh, why don't we take a second and just kind of round out our discussion of the kind of the two new members of our RPG party. Uh, we'll start with uh, Mary uh, played by Dominic Monaghan. His full name is Mary Adock Brandybuck. And he is a man of some importance uh, in the Shire, which we'll probably get to a little bit in our book discussion. Uh, But uh, he's in the films portrayed as kind of the more resourceful and brave one, um, at least maybe relative to Pippin, um, more so than anything. Um, We see him in these set of scenes. He's the one who kind of lures the Nazgul away by kind of ditching um, his bounty from Farmer Maggot's crop just to distract the Nazgul. And he's also the one who's kind of quick to understand uh, you know, that Frodo is the one being chased, that something's after him. He needs to get out of here. He's like the one who's quick to commit them to help, which, uh, again, we'll talk about a little bit more in our book session. But those are kind of the defining characteristics, at least in the film version of Marietta Brandybuck. 
Yeah, and I think one of the really like significant changes here, and I'm I'm gonna keep like hammering on this, like I'm kind of like an old boring Marxist professor at a uni, but like um in, in the books, um Mary is quite close to Frodo, not just in age, but also because of all of the um well, of all of the hobbits, he's also the closest in like class status. Um Pippin is actually kind of a rank above them because his dad is the thane um of uh of tuckland um and tuxbra um but mary and frodo kind of have this like old landed gentry kind of feeling to them and so they they are much much closer in in terms of their relationship um, and whereas in the movies it's definitely like Pippin and Mary are together and um, it's Frodo and Mary are definitely closer pals in, in the books. And I think like the change that they make in the, the films is, is like good and effective, but there's also like, I just feel like obliged to be like, they've also done some like neutering of the class dynamics here. And it's like important to like notice that or whatever, but yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely right. And that was something in my most recent reread. I'm like, Oh wow. There's so much more class politics here. And um, you know, kind of a class hierarchy. Um, like you said, you know, uh, the Tukes are kind of more, uh, royalty is a bad word, but like kind of like your official or magistrate. I don't know what the correct terminology is here, but then you kind of get the Brandy Bucks and the Baggins is more of kind of like well-to-do families that have some political sway, if no explicit power. Am I kind of characterizing that right? Yeah, or? totally. Okay. Feels good. Feels good to characterize things right. <laughs> um, and then hopping over to his partner, Pippin, or Peregrine Took, as played by Billy Boyd. And we've already talked quite a bit about him. And I think part of that is because, at least for me personally, he's my favorite of the Hobbit. Or I guess he's not because, you know, I love Sam. But I really, 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 really love Pippin. Um, I think he's great. I think Billy Boyd's performance is great. Um, how he's used... Um, you know, both, I mean, he, he is used a lot for comic relief and like punctuating, you know, kind of moments with some levity, but then, you know, he's actually like, his story is very, what like strikes at the core of my heart kind of thing, especially when you get into Return of the King. Um, and, you know, he plays the role of the audience surrogate more or less, or more so than probably any other character um, in the series, because, uh, you know, he's, He's kind of uh, characterized as very curious and almost curious to the point of fault where he can't help himself from playing with an arrow that ends up sending a skeleton down a well, which unleashes the, you know, goblins of Moria as well as the Balrog or the one who looks at the Palantir who, th who makes Sauron think that he has the ring. Um, but all of this stuff allows him to be the character who's like, what is that? What's going on? I'm interested in this. And that, you know, allows him to very naturally get into some of the exposition, the world building and all the kind of lore that we need to tell the story. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the things that I am like Pippin's number one fan, um, I like both books and movies. I think he's the like only character that I have like a consistent level of regard for in both the books and, and the movies. Um, I think he is a king. I genuinely, truly, deeply in my soul believe that Aragorn should be deposed and Pippin should be replaced um, or should replace him um, because he is just like perfect for me i love him um anyways um one of the things that i i quite like um about pippin's character as i sort of mentioned already is that like he's the youngest of all of them he's also the like richest slash most established of all of them so he's not just coming into this as like oh he's young and kind of dumb like in the books it's definitely dumb rich kid syndrome um, and they don't get at that quite as much in the movies but you do still get the kind of vibe that like he is naive, but in a way that like 
is maybe not as excusable, um, but it's all the funnier for it. It's never like malicious or, or like a malign kind of influence. It's just very much like this is this is someone who's like definitely sheltered and like definitely not picking up on the cues that everybody else is picking up on. Um, and 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 for that, like it is impossible, I think, and and should be legal not to love him. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I don't want to give away our forty-five minute discussion on second breakfast that we're going to have next episode. But you can see he's the one who's you know asking about like eleven meals during the course <laughs> of the day. That sort of lav- lavishness, kind of low key, hints at that kind of like the spoiled rich kid mentality you're talking about. Yeah, honestly, feed him forever. Give him whatever he wants. He's too precious for this world. (laughs) So all that fun and mirth and Looney Tunes nonsense all gives away because now the Nazgul properly enter our story proper, um, which we will learn from Aragon um, in a future scene, which we'll be covering next episode, I believe, um, were great kings of men once, but now they are just nine thralls to Sauron. Um, they were given rings of power against stuff Aragon and Telus, and then they fell into darkness and live in this twilight world or shadow world, whatever world you want to call it. And they seem to be Sauron's main hunters uh, for the ring, it would appear. But um, I'm going to kind of get out of the way and let Emily speak a little bit on the Nazgul. Yeah, so, oh boy. Um, so I was actually like panic listening to the audiobook of um, The Silmarillion today at work um, because I was like, I want to make sure that I'm getting this right. Um, and I think I am. Um, I did get distracted by the story of Feanor, as I always do, so I didn't actually get there. But nonetheless, um, the, uh, the the Nazgul, the Ringwraiths in, uh, in the books are only ever tagged as the former lords of Numenor. Um, and sorry, I should take out the article there. As former lords of Numenor, they are not the lords of Numenor. They're not kings. Um, they are just random aristocrats. Um, mm. And I, I, I think, I think I've briefly done this. Um, so I'm probably going to repeat myself a whole bunch of times here. But um, Numenor is the like home of men. It's an island in the sea. Um, far to the west, it's between like Valinor and um, Beleriand slash Middle Earth. Um, it was where the the men kind of established themselves, or like the holier of men um, established themselves. Um, then a whole bunch of them got tricked by Sauron into worshipping him because they wanted to avoid death. Um, and um, Elendil and Isildur and Anarion hauled ass out of there and were rewarded for that. Anyways, um, the, the, the kings of Numenor who uh, uh, worshipped Sauron um, were few because there was only really one king of Numenor. Um, there were a whole bunch of aristocrats, um, and um, these ring wraiths are those aristocrats. They are not kings. Um, and in in the books, they play that up, um, which I think has in the books it has like its merit because it's like you know all of these people, um, all of these like small bit players can come to have much greater roles. That's fine. Um, in the movies, they they name them as kings, and I think that's actually a lot more effective because, like, m- maybe it's the like cynicism of the latter half of the twentieth, early part of the twenty first century. But like aristocrats being corrupt and doing like evil shit isn't really that surprising. Um, it's also not surprising for like a monarch to do evil shit. Um, but it feels a bit more poignant to know that like these kings and men, these people who were like divinely ordained in a sense to lead over to rule over the men were corrupted. That has a bit more of like an emotional impact than like 
random aristocrat number one, like the Baroness of, what is it that Thatcher is? Like the Baroness of Grantham or whatever, um, was corrupt and did evil shit. Like, yeah, okay, we, we expect that. We all read the news. The King element, I think, really kind of packs that emotional and political punch. Um, and so I am quite grateful, <laughs> grateful for that. Um, and I'm also kind of grateful for the fact that they um, kind of try to smooth out the um, internal hierarchy for the Nazgul at this point. Like, you, we know, well, we kind of know the Witch King is among them, but we don't really know which one he is or... Um, like if there's any sort of internal hierarchy for them, we just know that they're all terrifying. Um, and I think that works out really well because as we learn more about the sort of like hierarchy and the politics of the world outside the Shire um, and like on the good team, um, we also start to get more and more revealed about the, the Nazgul and their internal politics, um, which kind of helps to set up this like their you know, there are two roads that lie before you in this wood, um, and one of them um, is good and has Aragorn, which is a shame, um, and the other one is bad and has the Witch King of Angmar, which is also a shame, but, you know, we're meant to go with the Aragorn side. Um, I'm just propagandizing at this point, but yeah. <laughs> um, I actually, yeah, um, in my most recent reading of The Lord of the Rings, I did not pick up uh, that they were not Kings of Men. It might be one of those things where, like, the movie is so, you know, incepted into my mind where I just kind of, like, gloss over that even if I read, oh, these were not kings, they were aristocrats. And I know you're citing the Silmarillion in uh, that kind of point there, but um, I just assumed they were kings. And it just, if nothing else, it makes sense as it makes things seem even more dire um, and, uh, what's it called? Just heightens the stakes. Um, I don't love using that kind of like trite, uh, pop culture discourse term. Um, but it does like, just feel like elevate, it elevates the threat and the terror of it. Um, especially, um, when you know that kind of like, as we'll get on later that like Gondor has no King and like kind of the kingdoms of men are in ruins. And then you kind of couple that with the fact that, um, the nine ring race were once Kings of men, at least in the film universe. Um, I think that just, I, I just think that plays really well together. Um, if nothing else. Yeah. And I mean, I think it kind of like muddies the waters further. Like it adds this like emotional undercurrent for, for Aragorn because, if these were once the kings of men and the kings of Dúmenor, um, and he is the heir of Isildur, who was the son of the king, well, one of the sort of lords of Númenor, um, that that kind of throws his like heritage into shadow a bit because it's like these are your ancestors. Um, what the hell are they doing? Isn't that a bit like weird that your house is capable of all of these things, um, and yet you claim? Um, where at some point you will claim the throne. Like, don't you feel some sort of like moral quandary over that? And obviously Aragorn does. Um, whereas if it's just these random lords, there's like really, he, you know, these aren't his people, who cares? Um, and so I think that like helps to build that like kind of like emotional efficiency of um, Aragorn's um, ongoing struggle. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes it a much more, I wouldn't call it necessarily personal, but it does make it a much more int intimate conflict. Uh, maybe it is personal. Maybe that means the same thing in this context. But 
Um, we can talk a little bit about um, the Nazgul design, and I'm just going to kind of go over it really quickly um, and then kind of let Emily speak about this. Um, but the Nazgul, as we said, are riders all in black. Um, there's really nothing visible about them otherwise in terms of their body. Um, you'll, you'll see gauntlets, you see, um, you know, boots and shin guards, um, but everything else is kind of wrapped up uh, just under their cloaks. Um, we see that um, the one Nazgul in the scene is actually sniffing, um, whether for the ring, for Frodo, um, at least the film's not specifically clear on that, but you can kind of imagine it's some combination of the two. Um, their horses are all black, um, and they seem kind of possessed. Um, there's red eyes on them. Um, and then uh, later on, when we you know get to the flight to the Ford and Arwen's midnight ride, um, you'll see that their like mouths are like super foamy, and they just look like. Ugh, you know, just gross, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word. Um, but that's just kind of like the, you know, high level design discussion. But I think uh, Emily has quite a bit to say on this. Oh, God. Yeah. When do I not? Um, so so I will start this off by like something that I think is quite delightful. And then I will get into me just like bitching. Um, the, the thing that is delightful is... Um, in the books, um, in the Two Towers, when the three hunters meet Aomer, um, Aomer starts off their discussion... Um, because every every time these guys meet anyone, they have to have like twenty minute long discussion. They're just like standing in the middle of planes, loads of dead orcs around them. They're like, "What we really need to do right now is chat history." Which, like, fair enough, that is also my approach, but ridiculous. Anyways, um, Amber starts off by being like, um, "Sauron has been stealing our horses," um, which makes sense because like the Rohirrim are the horse lords. They like breed the best horses in Middle Earth. Like, of course. Sauron would want that, except Sauron's only stealing the black horses, which is dead funny because it means he's so committed to the aesthetic, he will not accept any other horses. Um, and we know some of the better horses um, are going to be like light-colored, like bay steeds, because there's a whole long conversation about that in the books. Um, but no, Sauron is going to take the L on like skill and like speed of these horses because he needs to have the black horses. Massive mood, goth icon. Um, anyways, I just think that's what's a fun, uh, what weird thing for Tolkien to have included, but I love and appreciate it all the same. <laughs> that out of the way. <laughs> um, so I'm going to like try and be light and airy-fairy about this because I don't want to be like too much of a Debbie Downer. But um, this is where um, I start to get like a bit kind of, kind of cranky about the um, aesthetic of the films in general i think i'm like i'm trying to be careful because i think they do nail it in some places and in other places i think it's not great um but my ongoing problem that i'm going to express a lot throughout this podcast is twofold um one is the like one part of this problem is that like the craft is brilliantly executed in all cases like it is this is the, these films are obviously a labor of love if you've watched the behind the scenes films or uh, uh behind the scenes footage you'll see that like it is genuinely a, a like a herculean effort um, and it's all very well thought out and um draws on like a, a lot of really fascinating like craft traditions to to make you know everything from you know the smallest of props to the most like big and like like industrial scale um of costumes like i'm thinking of the chain mail um so there is this incredible amount of like craft expertise and effort that goes into these films that shows up on on film um to great effect and and i like can only be grateful for it because i think it's something that we're like increasingly losing um in in the world of cinema actually to be honest kind of kind of across most entertainment um i know some of my friends who work in the theater world do kind of whine and bitch about the fact that like 
you know, every everywhere is cutting corners and you're not really getting that same emphasis on like high level craft work. And I was trying to avoid saying craft work, but here we go. Um, and then you have to like, or at least I have to counterbalance that with the fact that I think a lot of the aesthetic choices made in the films um, are kind of lazy. Um, I, I was like going to try and think of a nicer, softer way to say it, but I can't really. Um, and and the reason I say it's lazy is because it kind of all revolves around this like singular idealized Western European vision of what medieval life was like. Um, and so there's this kind of like classic, you know, it's the like halberks and the tunics and the like breeches and the, the you know, the gauntlets and it's all the kind of like Ren Faire looking clothing and costumes. Um, and like, I think that's fine in some areas. Like, I think that would be quite effective in, for example, uh, Rohan and in Brie, which are both meant to be kind of Germanic and like Anglo-Saxon-ish in, in um, aesthetic orientation. But for a lot of the other civilizations that we encounter, like namely the elves and the men, um, the non-Rohir men, the Gondorim really, um, they're not meant to be anglo-saxon and germanic um gondor is meant to be byzantine um the elves are you know there, there's a lot of different traditions within the elves um but generally are meant to kind of have this more like classical greco-roman feel to them um, and i realize this kind of I, I risk like sounding a bit fashy as i'm saying this but but i think like one of the problems for me is that there is like this massive like wealth of like historical art and artifacts that these films could have drawn on um and instead they kind of all went the same root of like everything's kind of going to look like it's meant to be a Beowulf set um and and for Numenor specifically because Numenor oddly enough um has one of the most defined aesthetics of all of the civilizations of men um and so Numenor is where these is like from whence the uh Nazgul hail um is meant to be incredibly like Byzantine and like pre-christian hellenistic um and almost like uh ptolemaic egyptian in, in how it looks um and so you could have had some really cool really exciting um costuming decisions made when you're showing the nazgul um and instead it's it's just kind of western european um and it it I don't know it kind of sticks in my craw a bit um and like it is this problem for me because I'm like I think that is like a like a like a lame choice, um, and it does not make me like feel happy about these films. But also, it's all executed so well that I'm like, Ugh, can't really can't really complain that much, can I? Um, but yes, I'm gonna come back to this. I'm gonna definitely come back to this once we see like what's under what's under the hood in uh, Weathertop, and then I'm gonna come back to it a lot in Gondor. But like, I'm gonna get this out here, like. They shouldn't have just done like the Beowulf kind of vibes because there's so much more they could have drawn on. Um, and I think it would have actually changed the face of like fantasy as a genre um, and in a way that I think would have been quite helpful, um, certainly for getting us out of the kind of like aesthetically boring costuming and propping rut we're in right now where everything just looks like like shit little England. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
Uh, I would say like I have a lot of the same, I wouldn't say complaints, but like I have a lot of the same criticisms about like Game of Thrones, which again is also the books tend to be a lot more vibrant, colorful and out there. And then you kind of see and I, I think, you know, again, the costuming makeup and everything about Thrones looked great, you know, within its own. It defined its own aesthetic and then everything kind of lived there. But then what happens is um, and we talked about this last time or in one of our previous episodes about kind of the Orientalist aesthetic of um, the Easterlings or, you know, um, the Herodrim or whatever it is. So when you have such kind of a narrow aesthetic for like the West, the the kingdoms of men, uh, whatever you want to call it, and then everything else is this kind of outlandish Orientalist aesthetic when there's so much room in between that, you know, you can play in and that would actually probably lessen um, kind of like the both ends of the spectrum kind of, you know, the, you know, the problems with, you know, veering hard towards, you know, medieval realism or hard towards, you know, kind of the Orientalist approach to um, the Easterlings and the Southern uh, uh, locations. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Like there was just so much more space to play in. Um, but I don't know if any of this was informed by, you know, those high barriers to entry or if people are worried, like if this looks too goofy or too colorful or something that defies, you know, kind of that English medieval aesthetic they're laying down, it would, you know, break suspension of disbelief. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I think the criticism is absolutely valid. Um, and it is something that I think Jackson has explicitly said they went for this aesthetic specifically as opposed to, you know, being a little more fantastical with some of the designs with uh, props, costumes, and all that. Yeah. And I guess, like, for me, one of the things that I find kind of interesting is, like, I, I and as, like, someone who is, like, sort of kind of, uh, like, latently interested in, um, like, historical clothing and historical dress um definitely not enough to like know a huge amount about it but like enough to be kind of vaguely aware um <laughs> the past is always going to be more colorful than it's portrayed in on tv like i think um i think you know I, maybe there's been like a new sort of move towards like popular consciousness of the fact that like the past you know capital p there um the past was quite garish actually and it's only really been in the last hundred or so years that we've become more like muted in in color um on and i've kind of started to like look at the the ways that we used to dye things and be like mm, maybe we don't need that anymore um but i think there there have also been quite a few like pushes um in um largely on stage actually um so it's kind of hard for me to like point out at specific movies but like to do um muted versions of like different silhouettes um and i don't want to like get too like in the weeds on this but like um one of the things that sticks out for me at least is um and we'll get to it much much later because it is my favorite costume in i think the whole series really um is boromir's costume for i think the duration um is actually quite like a it's not necessarily an edgier silhouette but it is definitely a different kind of silhouette um, and they get away with it by kind of doing things to like minimize the like visual impact of it. And so they get to do something that's slightly ballsier, but like they draw it back in certain ways. Um, and I wish they'd done that. Like, you know, I'm like, I don't want like a full toga, but like there's a lot of stuff that goes on in like Byzantine fashion, especially like late Byzantine fashion um, that isn't so hokey looking um and that like if you know you take the the sort of bright and exciting colors away from it and put it in the like muted browns and grays and blacks um could kind of pass or scan as like traditional fantasy but not feed so much into this like the world and you know the bygone era of 
fantasy medievalism all looked like um a village in windsor or whatever um but but yeah but yes um yeah there were obviously like a a lot of very specific choices made there um and you know possibly some longer term restraints i'm just like please just be like find your spines on some of the aesthetics like there's so much here to work with and it's sad that it wasn't used Um, and uh, just going to do a quick tangent here because you mentioned about the way we look at the capital P past with these kind of narrow lens and maybe we kind of treat it differently than we should or we have a different image of it. Um, our good friend Luke does a podcast called We're Not So Different, which is about actual medieval history and about how a lot of the um, a lot of what we believe about the Dark Ages and the term the Dark Ages is probably a bad term to use, according to that podcast, um, is actually um, those people are not that different from us other than, you know, kind of technology and stuff like that. But how they behaved, what morality was, um, we kind of have a certain image of it that's, you know, probably redefined and re- uh, reinforced by pop culture. Um, but that's actually not true. Um, so I would just say, you know, go check out uh, their podcast. It's Luke and Dr. Eleanor Yanega. Uh, just like us, they have a um, dude in America and much smarter person over in Europe d- dynamic kind of working. So <laughs> um, there's uh, the plug for that. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention, this section and this kind of works also, how we talked about how the Lord of the Rings aesthetic would then be passed down to um, stuff like Game of Thrones is the characteristic Nazgul scream, um, which is just basically a high-pitched shriek, um, which is, seems to be you know the main form of showing emotion for the Nazgul. They shriek when they're about to attack. They shriek when they're on fire. Um, they shriek when they're confused. Um, it's not their only language, but um, it has become very distinctive uh, for the fantasy genre to the point where um, Game of Thrones would end up using the same kind of Nazgul scream for the White Walkers, which is not a choice I like at all. Um, because what, sorry, I'm going to go on a Game of Thrones uh, tangent here. Um, in the first couple seasons of Game of Thrones, um, the White Walkers talking was... Uh, depicted as like ice cracking which is like perfect such a cool sound design sound choice um and then when they finally show up at the end of season two to attack the fist of the first men um the leading white walker raises his spear and makes essentially a nazgul scream and then gone is all that ice cracking white walker specific stuff and they just basically sound like the nazgul from there on and i'm gonna guess that that nazgul scream has also showed up in other fantasy um media fiction what have you and it's kind of become a default you know scream for dark forces or things that are kind of you know visually or symbolically similar to the nazgul um you know where it showed up that is like kind of baffling to me because it's it's not like it showed up in response to lord of the rings i don't think um but they when they redubbed the sand people in a new hope um they take it from the like to be honest quite comedic um original which is just like ben making weird whooping noises um to something that is a shriek um and i would love like i would love more than anything and this isn't like this is going to come off as really disingenuous but it's not i'm dead serious i would love more than anything to know like what the like psychosocial history of this is like why did we all suddenly decide that like shrieking like that specifically was such like an omen of 
bad things to come because it, it does feel like it's like a very specific turn in the late 1990s to that um, and then onwards obviously game of thrones comes much later but like you know in in the 70s late 70s when they're doing star wars they're just making these like weird whooping noises and that's terrifying but then suddenly we get to the 90s and it's the shriek again i would love to know <laughs> why that is <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I feel gaslit by the shriek uh, that Ben Kenobi does in A New Hope because (laughs) over the course of my life being born in 1984, I've seen now like six different versions of (laughs) Star Wars 1977. And I feel like there's a different scream or yell uh, each time when he scares off the sand people. So, uh, but yes, you're right. In the most recent version, it is far more Nazgulish than um, the first version I heard, which was just like, like you said, weird Alec Guinness noises. I'm sure it wasn't him making it, but huh. it sounded almost more like a siren or, um, I don't know, a fire truck. And now it's, I don't know. Um, it's, it's all over the place. Like I said, I can't even keep all the different versions of that sound straight in my head at this point. I'm going to like issue a new one for the new Kenobi series. Just you wait. Oh, oh God, they will. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we're going to be shifting into our cinematography and score. Um, portion of our episode and this really isn't specifically in analyzing uh, the cinematography here but this walk through the cornfields uh, allows uh, me us whatever to shout about one of my other favorite movies that came out a couple years after this and that is M. Night Shyamalan's Signs uh, and I have nothing to add really to that other than the cornfields is really evocative of it um, kind of in a similar way, uh, Signs is, uh, uses the cornfields and corn stalks as a way to create kind of artificial boundaries on screen so that aliens would just be just off screen or you'd c- catch a lag or something like that. Um, but it uses a way of kind of limiting your field of vision. Um, it creates a sense that there's something out there, that there's something coming just, you know, hit, you know, kind of right in front of you, but you can't see it because of, you know, the corn stocks and all that and while i obviously it's not homaging a film that would come out you know two years later um i think there's something very similar visual in the style of what those kind of symbolize and it kind of really uh, bears fruit because just off screen is the nazgul and we roll right into that scene right after they uh leave the cornfield so um just kind of a, a simpatico between those movies if nothing actual of analysis to me yeah. And I think it's like, I, I do like that. Like, and I feel like I'm allowed to say this because my family is from Ohio in part, but like the Midwest is fucking scary. Um, and I do like that this is like an ongoing cinematic. I know science is Pennsylvania, but like, whatever, it's all the Midwest to me. Um, mm-hmm. But like, there's this kind of like things that happen in the Midwest are terrifying. And like, even the really mundane elements of it should terrify you. And like, I have heard what like de- detasseling corn is like, I've heard how painful that is. I totally agree. Like that, that shit is horrifying. Um but yeah, I, I, it's just like, it really is like striking how similar it feels. And I'm just desperate for someone to do like a deep fake of like the bit in Signs um, where the alien is like walking between the hedges in Brazil, but just like put Pippin's face on that. I think that would like, you know, if you want like your next like viral thing, it won't be viral, but I'll retweet it about a thousand times. Um, so Yes. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. and, and that was that was the trigger in my brain for this, which is um, it, like I'm going to get a counter going, um, but this isn't a reference to signs like, like as you rightly say, because there are no like premonitions involved in Peter Jackson making this, I don't think. Um, but Peter Jackson is a big pole poor guy, um, and there are going to be a shit ton of references to pole poor throughout the series. 
Um, and I am unfortunately not a pulp horror person, but I do know lots of people who are really into horror. So I'm going to be harassing them over the next <laughs> couple months to be like, and is this a reference? Is this a reference? What about this? Um, and then I will bring that information to you. So as I like systematically destroy any goodwill I have with these friends um, and also my partner who I'm certain I'm going to destroy all my goodwill with, um, <laughs> like I will then share uh, the the pulp horror um, references, um, one of which is sadly not signs, um, but could be in a better world with better time travel. So something else I want to highlight, I don't think this is meant to be like a parallel, but something that kind of stuck out is, as I mentioned, um, when they escape the crop field, um, they kind of pull up to a precipice and three of the hobbits pull up just short. Um, but I think the fourth one, I don't know, remember if it's uh, Pippin or Mary or Sam. <laughs> so basically anyone but Frodo. <laughs> but he kind of hits all three of them as they all kind of stop short at the ledge. And then they all kind of go tumbling down the hill. And that got me actually thinking about um, Moria um, when uh, the Fellowship, you know, they're surrounded by orcs, but then the uh, Balrog is about to come. So they start fleeing and they make their way through um, kind of like a doorway and eventually to a stairwell where parts of the stair um, stairway are broken off and then we see the same four hobbits pull up but this time all four pull up so that no one goes barreling off the side of the stairs and to their death again i don't know if that's i don't think that's supposed to be anything deliberate but it just instantly visually clicked on me on this last rewatch that there's kind of like something there or if not like that fourth hobbit learned his lesson from <laughs> what happened with farmer maggot's crop they're all learning and for that we are immensely grateful because my god what a buzzkill if like all four hobbits just drop dead in moria pre-balrog even perhaps like the most like famous shot from uh this set of scenes is when uh frodo senses the nazgul coming and i don't have like the film craft words for this but it's kind of like a periscoping shot where it feels like the middle of the frame is kind of turning one way and then the outer part of the frame is kind of turning the other. Um, and it just kind of symbolized that something is something unnatural is coming down um, the pathway. And it's just something that kind of always sticks in my head. Um, it doesn't quite really make sense. It's not really sure if Frodo's experiencing this or seeing this. Um, it's definitely not happening to the real world. You know, the Nazgul, to my knowledge, cannot bend reality to their whim. Um, but it's just like, it's one of those, again, kind of vibe shots that I d talked about in our opener that just kind of immediately establishes a mood and a danger just based on this kind of weird camera gyration that happens. Yeah, because it's kind of like the like inverse of the shot in Jaws. Because um, instead of like zooming in on on Frodo's face, it's zooming away from Frodo's view. But it has that same sort of like simultaneous "oh shit" and also "I'm dizzy" feeling. Um, uh, that's really effective at like kind of building the tunnel vision. I'm trying to remember because I did read about the shot in Jaws ages ago about what Spielberg specifically was like trying to evoke in it. Um, I think it is like meant to be actually tunnel vision, and obviously it works really well um, with this scene because the trees are making a tunnel. Um, but yeah, no, that is like it's such a good like like a, a good vibe check and like scene setter. Um, and I really hadn't thought the huge amount about that shot until just now but but like yeah you're right it is brilliant and another thing uh once the nazgul does arrive um i really like how they kind of uh break up the vantage point and i mentioned this in the recap is we see the nazgul ride into frame and he is menacing um you know we see him like fully cloaked and like standing tall on the horse and we see the horse in full 
Um, but when we cut to the hobbits and we see them trying to get a peek of them, um, they just see like a boot, a hoof, um, you know, a gauntlet reached over a branch or a root. Um, it very much creates that sense of they're, they can't even perceive the danger that's coming after them. Um, they can only get glimpses of it. They can only feel its presence. Um, and that is something that, you know, we'll talk about more as we talk more about how they adapt the Nazgul. But the Nazgul do in the text tend to have this kind of like a blast radius of negative vibes kind of <laughs> where like ev everyone around them just kind of automatically feels like garbage all of a sudden, like they're worried, they're anxious. Um, and there, it's really hard to communicate that, you know, fully it, like through, uh, the, you know, the visual medium and then especially, you know, trying to condense this entire saga into nine hours. Um, it would, you know, if they like spent an entire episode, like an hour on just this moment, they could maybe bring it to life. But um, I feel like that's like a good way of kind of helping to, you know, kind of create like this kind of otherworldliness or kind of just like, it's hard to really understand what these things are, um, at least from the Hobbit's point of view, because they've never seen anything like this. Yeah, you know what? Actually, the 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 phrase "blast radius of bad vibes" is so brilliant. Like that's gonna stay with me forever. But it also made me immediately think of Colin Robinson from the um, "What We Do in the Shadows" TV show. Um, and I was just thinking they're trying to like come up in my with in my head how they introduce that blast radius of bad vibes for his character. Um, and it's actually really prosaic how they do it. They do it with fluorescent lighting and an office setting and that immediately sets the vibe of like oh my god he's a dreadful person to be around um, and you can't do that with the Nazgul like you say because they're this otherworldly kind of in, well not kind of otherworldly inhuman being um, and I guess like one of the the sort of on not ongoing problems as in like this is a critique I have but like one of the, the like ongoing problems that the filmmakers have to work to solve and at various points do solve quite well is like how do you communicate that kind of magical, mystical, uh, bad tour um, when we don't really have a common language of like mysticism and spirituality necessarily. Like, um, you know, uh, I, I think often of like the response to the exorcist um, and, and specifically my family, like my mom was raised Catholic and she says it's the scariest movie she's ever seen. Um, not because she hasn't seen movies that are scarier, but because she was raised as a Catholic. And so even if she didn't necessarily believe in, you know, God and, and the devil and everything therein, like the, the, the exorcist spoke that language to her uh, that she had grown up speaking of like, there is bad shit in the ether. Um, and it was a very specific like dialect of that language, but she understood it and got it a hundred percent. The Lord of the Rings has a much wider kind of, audience that it's playing to um and fewer and fewer sort of terms with which to like lay down these like sentences of like horror or whatever um and you know there is not necessarily the same especially in in the late 90s the the sort of post-soviet era i guess there's not really that same understanding in like the anglo west of like we all you know go to church or whatever the hell um so we don't all kind of use the same keywords or like cultural touchstones to evoke horror or things that are unsettling and so they have to find other ways to do it um and i think like you 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 really hit the nail on the head with that that one telescoping shot because that really does set it in a way that doesn't require um pointing out or like you know, drawing from other like hard cultural um, 
like like touchstones, it involves like like actually physically unsettling you. Right. And uh, one one note I kind of glossed over earlier in my notes is how they use insects here to kind of uh, hammer that home, because I think insects are a universal language <laughs> for at least creepy crawliness, if not like, I know plenty of people like insects and all that stuff. So I'm not trying to throw the entomologists here under the bus or anything. <laughs> um, but like they do, like when the Nazgul comes in um, and leans over the tree trunk and is sniffing for them, we get all these close-ups of like spiders walking on uh, Sam's, you know, cloak or like all these worms coming out or millipedes, centipedes and all these bugs at the floor. Um, part of it is, you know, it's just like it's a universal language. It makes it sound creepy uh, or makes it feel creepy and more menacing than it might actually be. But now kind of building off my new black blast radius of bad vibes menace or uh, theory i'm thinking that maybe these bugs are just trying to get the fuck away from the nazgul because they're creeped out as well um if they have to crawl over a hobbit to do that so be it but um yeah again like you said there's no universal language for that kind of stuff so they do have to use you know tricks of the camera or rely on like popular phobias just like a distaste for bugs to help kind of create that move and kind of create that setting um sorry setting but create that uh vibe uh for these scenes with the nazgul specifically yeah one one of the things that that was just making me think about is um i i did this is like the the worst sentence i'm ever gonna say on this podcast i promise and um, when i was an undergrad i took a course on um dante's inferno um and one of the things that my poor like tutor had to try and like express to all of us as like 20 somethings living in edinburgh in the year 2021 who were like not terrified of anything except getting canceled on twitter is like how certain things that like dante talks about in um, in the Inferno are meant to be shit scary to his audience. Um, and, you know, we've like not, I don't want to say evolved, but like, um, because it's not like a progress kind of thing, but we don't have the same um, understanding of like um, this specific like action that a person is taking should be terrifying to us um, because it's just not part of our like cultural framework. And, but then there are other things that are terrifying no matter who you are or where you're from, like, you know, the people boiling alive in blood, like that is going to be scary regardless of where you are. Um, and one of these things that um, in the books, I think is, is especially interesting to me is that like Tolkien really relies on like certain, like a very specific set of like cultural understandings to really set his tone. Like he is writing primarily at the start for his like group of professors pal like pals who are professors at, at oxford and his like little writing circle and they like will all largely get like his linguistics jokes but like quite a few of them are like um like quite like devout christians i say christians and not catholics because i think i think tolks was the only catholic of all of them but like his his policy yeah. so this is like a devout anglican um he's got quite a few of of the others who who are devout christians in one way or than another and like obviously there's like over like arcing kind of themes of like language there that would like be understand like mutually intelligible for all of them that like would not be mutually intelligible for like us sitting here in 2021 looking back on what they're saying um and you know obviously the the, the books have been written 60 70 years ago so you can't really change that but the movies then have to go back and be like right how do we take this this thing that like would have been viscerally, viscerally terrifying to readers in 1954 and make it as viscerally terrifying for viewers in 2021 or well 2001 um mm -hmm. and um not just viscerally terrifying for like the english readers but for everybody across the globe they need to be able to come into the movie theater sit down and be terrified by this 
Um, and you're really speaking across like 190 or whatever different languages and national borders. And so there's like an element of like universalization there um, to this film um, that you don't get in the book because it wasn't necessary for the book that I think is like really fascinating as we like continue to move out into the wider world of Middle Earth from this point in the Shire. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And from there, we will transition to basically the chase through the trees that occurs at nighttime. There's not a whole lot of like plot here, but it is just excellently shot overall. Just great night shooting, um, an excellent use of blues and blacks to kind of set the mood and set the tone, especially coming out of the vibrant greens and suns of the Shire. Um, And they it just really kind of nice little set piece. Um, that they have here with the hobbits kind of ducking and diving through the br- through the bushes um, and in the brush, and then, you know, kind of coming out and trying to make way for Buckleberry Ferry. Um, a way that they kind of heighten this tension is that when the camera is focused on, say, Frodo, when he's running and trying to catch the ferry, Frodo is in slow-mo, but we'll often see um, shots of the Nazgul or everyone else at normal speed. So it kind of just adds this layer of tension to the chase that's happening here. Um, and then probably... Um, the most uh, memorable shot of all this is when Frodo actually jumps on the ferry and they see the Nazgul pull up short and then kind of ride off to, you know, kind of intercept them, whether it's on the Great East Road or at Brandywine Bridge. But then we see that there's multiple Nazgul, um, what's it called, that kind of run horizontally across the screen, uh, revealing themselves to be many hunters, not just the one. Um, Just again, kind of saving that reveal for the end of this scene, again, just heightens the tension even more as we're kind of slowly building to a climax with the Nazgul chase, or at least this is kind of like the first act of the Nazgul stuff. The second act will be kind of like what happens at Bree, and then the third act will be at Weathertop. I know the Nazgul are still part of the story, you know, from there on, but it's kind of like heightening and ratcheting up the threat and the horror associated with them. Yeah, and I think it is, like like you say, like they are still a part of the story in in subsequent films um but we don't ever see them at full strength in the same way that we do in this film like um, and i think it is actually significant that we get you know the full kind of nine for the first time when the hobbits are number just four um because it really does give the sense of like um the nazgul are better prepared they are the stronger force here um they can really outdo our our, our wee little hobbit pals um, quite easily um and yet they don't um but but they could um because they are so numerous um and the stronger our team gets um the fewer and fewer nazgul there are until finally there's kind of just the witch king left and we don't really see or hear from uh the remaining nazgul thereafter um or really for like the four hours of film films before then um but it is kind of this like sense that there is this nine and they are overpowered as fuck um and we get them at night and it's terrifying and there's this like headless horseman vibe to them um mm-hmm. and as we build up our pals our side um they kind of begin to to dwindle almost as if they're like being pushed back in a way by the like light yeah, absolutely. Um, and something the movies don't really highlight, and we'll probably talk more at the Council of Elrond, is that the Fellowship being nine is a direct answer to the Nazgul being nine. Or at least it ends. they end up you know, using that as a piece of propaganda <laughs> of sorts, um, yeah. so to speak. Um, and then uh, 
One last thing here about kind of the cinematography, or this isn't really cinematography, but just kind of the story, I guess. Um, I mentioned how like the tumbling down the hill was kind of like maybe, you know, kind of a foreshadowing for like, you know, what happens in Moria. Um, Here in the scenes, we have the four hobbits kind of hiding in the bushes and Mary's like, you know, we're coming with you, Frodo. We're going to come and help you. Um, And if you compare that to the film's ending, when uh, the Urukai attack at um, Jesus Christ. Amon Hen, Parth Galen, Parth Galen, Parth Galen, Parth Galen. That's it. Um, we see that, like again, Frodo takes cover underneath a tree. We see uh, Pippin and Mary uh, hiding in the bushes, and they're kind of signaling to Frodo that you know he has, to, you know, he should come hide with them so they can all be safe. Um, but this is where Frodo, you know, breaks the fellowship and kind of goes off on his own. And we see Mary um, in this scene. He takes charge and is like, follow me. We'll go to Buckleberry Ferry. At the end, he's going to be kind of the one who kind of, you know, hey, follow us, Urukai. You know, don't, you know, ignore this other hobbit running the other direction. Come <laughs> chase after us. They don't see Frodo. So that's, you know, a bit of an exaggeration. But um, again, I'm seeing a, a couple similarities kind of something that happens in this scene that echoes later. Again, I'm not sure I want to call it foreshadowing, but you can kind of see some of the visual and narrative similarities between the two. Yeah, that was a total gut punch um, because I really hadn't thought about that. And that is just like really like quite emotionally devastating because poor Mary is like this worked once before and Frodo came along and and we were broadly fine and like broadly got along okay. Um, And obviously when you you get to Parth Galen, um, Frodo doesn't come along and it's not fine and they're not okay and won't be okay for, well, I guess really, really for only like two weeks after that. But like, it feels like more than two weeks. And like, oh man, that is like, oh, poor Mary. (laughs) That's that's quite upsetting. Uh, Yeah, no, I would definitely run with that parallel because I think that is like a really great way of thinking about that and how sad that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the kind of the last thing I want to mention is about the score here and not, not too much. Uh, just basically uh, when they're running through the maggots, uh, the, the maggot, uh, the farmer maggots crop. Uh, what's it called? There's kind of like a playful adventure music intermingled with some bars from Concerning Hobbits. Um, just, you know, kind of a nice touch. And it, we're starting to see that intermixing of themes that we kind of laid out earlier in one of our previous episodes. And we're going to start seeing less these main light motifs play in full and more of them kind of be um, kind of modified or enhanced or renovated to fit with current specific context of what's going on in the story. Um, and that all is juxtaposed against the Nazgul chase, which for a lot of it, especially when the Nazgul first rides up, there is no score. It's silent, um, which, again, might be another one of those ways that they're kind of trying to invoke a sense of menace and like otherworldly evil of the Nazgul is this kind of playful, um, operatic grand score kind of goes deathly silent for when the Nazgul arrive um, to hunt for Frodo and his friends. Oh my god, no, absolutely. Um, oh, I'm so glad you brought this up, because literally just today, as I was listening to the Silmarillion, um, there's a bit um, in... I'm not even going to try try and like cite chapter and verse here. Anyways, the description of Ungoliant, who is this like malevolent being who takes the form of a spider, um, she is described as bringing with her not darkness, but unlight. Um, and like Tolkien really takes his time to lay it out and it's quite beautiful. So I'm not going to try and like say it here because I'll just bastardize it and ruin it. But like he basically says it's not, um, the, it's not the absence of light is like a malevolent opposite to light. Um, and, and there's this, because it's this opposite to light, it actively feels harmful. It's not like, you know, nighttime happens, dark happens, and that's quite like a passive thing. Um, 
the the unlight is active and it is actively bad and actively insidious um and and just you saying that there like that silence is is really making me think of that it's this we have had this chipper and cheerful music and it is gone now and it's being sucked up into this vacuum of this like all-encompassing and like quite devastating evil um and it's not just passively done it's not like we've just kind of forgot to change to the next song it is it is actively gone um yeah that is like yeah uh really lines up quite well and and again it just really the sound design and and scoring of this film is really just genius in new and exciting ways every day All right, so we'll wrap up now with our token token book analysis. And uh, the first thing I want to highlight here is that Mary and Pippin in the film are kind of happenstancely <laughs> run into Frodo and Sam and end up becoming part of the fellowship, or at least part of the party that's leaving the Shire and then eventually part of the fellowship. But Mary and Pippin were far more involved with Frodo's departure from the Shire um, in the books. Uh, Mary knows about the ring, you know, that Frodo is the ring bearer from Sam because, you know, that's the kind of guy Sam is. And it kind of makes me want to read one of my favorite passages from the books where, you know, Frodo's kind of like, I got to go do this. I have to leave. I'm going to, you know, kind of leave you guys behind. Um, you guys can't come with me. I, I should have probably grabbed some of the context before this quote I'm about to read because I hope I'm not butchering it. Um, but basically, we get this great dialogue from Mary, which I'm going to read here, which says, all depends on what you want, he says to Frodo. Uh, you can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. Um, and I, that's just like a very moving part of Tolkien's uh, text to me. Like, I kind of want to cry here as we're talking yeah. about it. And while uh, I don't think they give, you know, Mary or anything close to something this poetic, um, you do kind of get that at least it comes through in the character and the performance that um, these hobbits are loyal to each other. Um, but I do really love this part of the text. Like, honestly, it might be my favorite part of the text, or at least my favorite part that doesn't really find its way um, into the film adaptation explicitly. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you brought that quote up, because I have that in my horribly battered copies of these books, which are only like six months old, um, so they really shouldn't be as battered as they are. But I have that like highlighted and underlined and like have a million hearts around it, because it, you're right, it is just a brilliant line. Um, and I think just hearing you talk about it there and, and like the its lack of inclusion in the, the film is kind of making me think about how... Um, you have to be... Well, you don't have to be, but as a writer, like you benefit from being more verbose and more explicit in like your character's emotions because you can't see their faces and you can't really see their their actions in the same way that you can on screen and so where you need that many words beautifully written words and I'm not you know I'm not dunking on it at all like I they are absolutely stunning words where you need that many words to say that thing that sentiment express that sentiment in a book um, in a movie, you can express it through a gesture um and and you know as as is the case in 
in both the books and the films that gesture is following um you know mary announces that he's following but in in the films he he just follows um and and it's that sort of devotion shown through that and it's just interesting the the different ways in which you express these sentiments you know either through the 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 written word or uh the the on-screen word i don't know there's probably a smarter like film (laughs) word for that but you know what i mean like it's it's how you use the tools um, in your toolbox based on the different mediums. Yeah, I could see um, in kind of the the dregs of, you know, Twitter discourse and pop culture discourse, if this quote found its way into the films, someone would be, show us, don't tell us this stuff. <laughs> um, and I'm sure like, you know, Mon- uh, what's it called? Dominic Monaghan could have delivered this, uh, you know, dialogue or a lot of times in adaptation, they shift, a- shift around who says what. So it didn't have to be him per se. I'm sure it would have been great. But um, you know, the fact that they have the tools to actually show us that devotion, like you say, instead of having to spell it out for us. But man, Tolkien does spell it out really well. Yeah. Um, can't get past that. No, that is, it, it's, I think this whole scene, um, so for, for those who haven't read the books, this whole scene, this whole chapter really is fascinating um, because it's kind of slow, it's slow, but it's fast. Um, and it has these ups and downs that I think are quite characteristic of the way that Tolkien writes. But, you know, you have... Um, uh Sam and um Frodo I keep putting Sam first like he's the main character and I guess in, in, in my head he really is but but Frodo and Sam are going through Farmer Maggot's fields um and um they've got Pippin with them and they end up um with Farmer Maggot and then there's kind of a slow scene there where they have lunch and Farmer Maggot tells them no not sorry yeah yeah it is Farmer Maggot Farmer Maggot kind of tells them about um his experience with the Nazgul and then you know they kind of get a bit scared but they don't really see the Nazgul yet and they go wandering on um and then they finally make it to Buckland and Frodo's new house and you know Mary and Fatty Bulger are already there and not only are they already there they're already there and they've been making dinner and so they've got this like lovely roast dinner ready and baths ready and so after this horrifying chase um Sam Frodo and Pippin just you know hop in their baths and then have a lovely roast dinner and sit and chat and it's you know it's quite a bit slower um and kind of homier and like uh like uh, kind of more of an emphasis on like the hearth element of it um and you know you contrast that to this where they really do have to be out in the cold to like maintain the pacing of it um but I I do think that that kind of is again like the tools of the trade between writing a novel and filming a film which is the you pack your punch in writing by immediately undermining the sort of sense of security that you built. But obviously humans are fickle things, fickle beings, and you kind of have to keep building up that sense of security and undermining it because the amount of time it takes you to watch a film is, you know, for a lot of people, the amount of time it takes you to read like a quarter of a book. Um, And so you have a lot more kind of constraints on how you can do certain like types of dramatic irony in a novel because you constantly have to be reminding your readers of where you are at and what your like feeling was whereas with um a movie you know they've only just experienced this two minutes ago they still remember it like it like it was two minutes ago um, and you don't have to keep coming back to it um yeah uh, that is yeah oh that line <laughs> um and uh, my next note here is that uh, Pippin or Peregrine Took is actually a historian of sorts uh, for the Hobbits and um, kind of the stuff that he'll put down as a history um, is explicitly called out more in the text. 
Um, I might actually just kind of push the discussion of this to a later episode because uh, my co-host Emily here is both a historian and a big Peregrine Took fan. Uh, so maybe we'll give that a little bit more space on its own, perhaps when uh, Pippin is in Gondor, um, kind of two intersections of history um, might be a better spot to talk about it because we have some other things we want to talk about. And that's mainly Fatty Bulger. Um, yes. Emily, take it away. Oh, Fatty, my man. I love Fatty Bulger. Fatty Bulger is my hero. Um, he does not really properly show up in the films. I think they have like one like extra who they say is Fatty. Um, no, Fatty Bulger is a folk hero of epic proportion. I don't know who the fuck Tom Thumb or William Tell is. It is just Fatty Bulger. Um, in the scene in the book, um, Fatty Bulger talks about how he was approached by the Nazgul, a Nazgul, and laughed in its face and, and basically said, I'm not telling you anything. Um, essentially, fuck you, come back with a warrant. Um, but in Hobbit language, so he just kind of laughed at him and was like, I don't know who you are, I'm not telling you anything. And there is only one other character in the entire series who laughs in the face of a Nazgul, and it's Eowyn, and Eowyn also kills that Nazgul, and it is the single greatest martial act of the war. Fatty Bulger has balls of steel and does not get enough credit for it. It's just absolutely, absolutely incredible. And there's no way they could have done it in the film because it would have undermined like every other character choice. It would have undermined the like sheer shock and horror element of the Nazgul. But the Hobbits rock. Uh, Fatty Bulger is my king uh, after Pippin. He's my like prince, um, and it's just like a, a really phenomenal like little bit there that like these hobbits are so isolated that they don't even really understand or not understand, but they're not really as scared of things that they should be scared of because it's just not like in their vernacular. Really, fear is not. They don't speak fear. Yeah. No. Um. And one thing I like a lot about these movies, these books in general, is how much about The Lord of the Rings is how we respond to evil. Um, and, you know, one way to do it is, like you say, Fatty and Eowyn um, at various points actually laugh at the evil, laugh right in its face. And it's like, no, uh, you know, not today uh, to evil is what they say. Um, and, a lot, you know, because, you know, Sauron doesn't really take physical form. Um, a lot of the focus of these stories is how um, our characters, the fellowship and everyone who kind of surrounds the story um, reacts to evil. And even like the core thesis of these, um, you know, of, of this saga is the fact that um, Sauron assumes that if someone recovered the ring of power, they want to use that ring of power because that's, you know, what he would do. And that's the only way people should handle power. Um, whereas, you know, a big, you know, through line is the fact that they are choosing the, you know, the road less traveled, um, the one that, you know, Sauron would least suspect or Saruman would least suspect. And that would be just to destroy the ring as opposed to try to use it for your own ends. And I think this kind of broadly feeds into uh, themes of pacifism that Tolkien was about. Um, Frodo doesn't carry a sword and mortar, I think we mentioned in a previous episode. Um, so it's kind of like the ways we respond to evil with laughter, pacifism, uh, subterfuge instead of violence. Um, all those things are kind of important to kind of the overall thematic thrust of this story. Yeah, for sure. And I also think it's like really interesting um, because um, because it, it is this choice, as, as you say, but it's also this kind of choice born of like um, 
this kind of moral innocence of both Fatty and Eowyn. Um, we're never really led to believe that Eowyn necessarily knows who the Witch King of Angmar is before she fights him. She may have sort of like a like an outlying understanding of him, but she definitely doesn't know of the prophecy. Um, and Fatty Bolger absolutely has no idea what the Nazgul are. Um, and and so they are kind of in in this moral universe. They are innocents. Um, and for the kind of like strength of their courage. Um, and their sort of character strength and their moral strength. They see something that is this overtly evil, um, and it it does seem laughable to them because it's just so far out out with the like bounds of like acceptable morality that that all you could, it is farcical this evil like and it is an evil that has done like untold horrors raw untold horrors on you know thousands of people but to them it is just unthinkable and the only thing they can do is laugh um and and that is kind of i think um definitely plays into and a lot of like um these ideas that like tolkien raises of like you know the 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 moral innocence of the world and like what what life is like when you are kind of untouched truly untouched by by war as such so the last thing that kind of happens in the books that kind of get glossed over in full uh in uh the movies is there's a lot of time spent uh from when let's say frodo sam mary and pippin head out from where are they uh frodo's home in uh brandy oh my god how did that just happen to me it's in buckland buckland Buckland, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, Crick Hollow and Buckland. So um, basically uh, between uh, them setting out from the Shire and then to the time they get to Bree, um, there's chapters involved uh, where they go through the old forest. Um, There's an old willow tree that sucks up, uh, you know, some of the hobbits. Um, Tom Bombadil, who you may have heard of or be very familiar with, uh, depending on your knowledge of Tolkien, um, you know, shows up here with his... Bay, Bay <laughs> Goldberry, I don't know what else to call her <laughs> at this point. Um, and then there's also an entire scene in the Barrow Downs where um, they are attacked by whites of sorts. Um, these are all scenes that are not adapted at all for um, the film. Um, but if you've been paying attention, well, earlier in this episode, I mentioned it, but also um, on a Patreon and Twitter, we've mentioned we will do bonus episodes of this podcast covering these uh, book only scenes, I'll call them. Um, so we can kind of talk about what they are, what they mean for the story as a, as a whole, and what kind of went into the choices not to adapt them and whether we kind of agree or don't agree with them. Uh, but um, all that stuff is very meaty, worthy of diving into. Um, so if you want to go over to patreon.com nuclear bomb and uh, sign up um, if we hit 75 we'll do it for all the book only scenes in the fellowship and if we hit 100 uh, we'll uh, do it for the two towers and return of the king as well i i'm i'm just sitting here kind of like maybe appropriately for uh for tom bombadil just zoning out thinking about all of tom bombadil's songs and how absolutely batshit it would have been to uh adapt those but i'm gonna cut myself off there um and uh remind everybody to go spend a whole bunch of money on this patreon so that we can talk about how absolutely batshit it would have been to adapt that um because tom bombadil is fun to talk about if nothing else (laughs) um if it helps, if we hit this stretch goal, maybe me and Emily will take our own shots at singing some Tom Bombadil lines. So oh, if that absolutely. is absolutely some... karaoke time, let's go. Okay, yeah. So there <laughs> it is. If, if if we unlock this episode, you will hear us both sing about our how our jackets are blue and our boots are yellow. So <laughs> um, please head over to patreon.com slash nuclear bomb and sign up today. 
And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which I've hit you over the head with a couple of times this episode, so I will not do it again. But manuclearbomb, hey, that's me. Um, you can also find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieras. And I've been Emily, and you can catch me at J-R-R Tweeting on Twitter. Um, or, yeah, just there. Come chat with me. Um, I tweet lots of insane things into the void, but would love to tweet them with you. Uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. And I'll emphasize this just this once. Um, if you give us a five-star rating and leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, that definitely helps us boost visibility, get our word out there, hopefully you know, meet these Patreon stretch goals and bring you even more Tolkien and Middle-Earth content. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. An old watchman questions them at the gate, saying there's been strange folk about. Sorry, let me rephrase that. An old watchman questions them at the gate, saying, say, God damn it. An old watchman questions the question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to start from the beginning of the paragraph. Maybe momentum will help.